This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, I'm Grace Ho, opinion editor for The Straits Times. You're listening to In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times that takes a hard look at social and political issues of the day. In this episode, we are going to look at how much Singaporeans need for a basic standard of living. In the studio with me today are Associate Professor Chiu Yu Yen, Associate Professor at the School of Social Sciences, Nanyang Technological University. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Grace. We also have Dr. Eun Kok Ho, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Case Study Unit at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. Great to have you on too. Hi, Grace. Four years ago, um, both of you studied how much elderly Singaporeans need for a basic standard of living, and later on, how much a family needs. Now, the number you arrived at, which is more than 6,000 for a family of four, looks pretty large. But then I looked up the exhaustive list of items that came up in your focus group sessions, and it started to make more sense as a reflection of people's lived realities and the kinds of budgets that are tied to these realities. So could you take us briefly through the methodology you use and how you applied this to the Singapore context? So uh, we use a methodology called consensus-based focus group discussions. And in this methodology, we reached out to ordinary Singaporeans um, across races, across uh, socioeconomic circumstances, of both genders, and we did multiple rounds of focus group discussions where they would come together in the first round to build a definition to tell us what kinds of things um, they think are basic to living in Singapore today. And from that definition, uh, we then take it to next few rounds of focus group discussions and we walk people through sort of a hypothetical case and a hypothetical household. And we ask them to tell us, to meet these basic standards of living in Singapore today, what kinds of things would somebody need in their living room, in their dining room, in their kitchen, in their bedroom, etc. So in the first round, based on what our participants told us, we came up with a definition that, that goes as follows. A basic standard of living in Singapore is about, but more than just, housing, food, and clothing. It is about having opportunities to education, employment, and work-life balance, as well as access to healthcare. It enables a sense of belonging, respect, security, and independence. It also includes choices to participate in social activities and the freedom to engage in one's cultural and religious practices. So in the next rounds of focus group discussions, when people are telling us, you know, what people need in the living room, in the dining room, in the kitchen, etc., we keep them focused on this definition, right? So if they tell us, you know, in the living room, you need a sofa, you need curtains, you need, you know, a certain kind of flooring, we ask them to tell us, you know, at what quality, at what price point, and how that meets this definition of basic needs, so based on these discussions, uh, in total, we talked to about 100 and we talked to 196 participants over 24 focus groups. And based on what they tell us uh, are the items that are needed, we went out and we looked for these items in, in shops uh, and we priced very specific items. And so from there, we built a budget that includes all the items that they've said are important and necessary for meeting basic needs. 
So based on that, we come up with budgets for different types of households, uh, meaning households with people at different age groups. Um, so we're able to capture, you know, kind of how how needs are different at different age groups. Uh, and then we come up with household budgets, we add them together, and we also have the rationales that people tell us about why those items are needed. So this way of approaching allows us to capture the lived realities of ordinary people. Um, it allows us to capture, you know, how people are thinking about basic needs. It allows us to capture, you know, what are some of the variations as people uh, grow older at different ages, you know, what people need. Um, and it allows us to um, sort of, you know, because our report is then includes, as you said earlier, you know, it includes all these nitty gritty and all the items. It allows us to share with the public yeah, the specific ways in which we arrived at these budgets. Right. And you spoke of basic needs and the specific ways at which you arrived at this budget. And, and as you would be aware, the finance ministry has counted your study on two points, um, among others, of course. The study's assumptions, um, which supposedly understate government subsidies and financial support to lower-income families. And also the second point about mortgage payments for flats as an expense item, when you could think of it as you know building up housing equity. So what's your response to that? Well, the main thing to remember is this study is interested in, in the cost of things, meaning how much income households need right? for a basic standard of living. It is not interested in its primary purpose, right? in where the money comes from. Right? So uh, that's really key. This is a study about the cost of things. So government subsidies and financial support, therefore, only really figure and are relevant to this analysis to the extent that they lower the cost of things, right? So uh, when it comes to uh, subsidies that are universal and automatic, for example, subsidized health screening and, and so on, those are already factored in. Uh, we already include only the, the subsidized costs of, of those items. Um, but for assistance that is targeted at lower income households, this usually go out to only a very small number of households. Right. So it wouldn't be logical or, or reasonable to then assume that much lower cost of those services for, for all households in Singapore when in fact on, only a very small number have received those assistance. So because the MIS budget is a budget for all households, the methodology does not take into account uh, strictly means-tested assistance. Um, so that's in the calculation of the budget, right? Um, but in any case, in our uh, re in our report, because once you have the MIS budget, it does provide a benchmark by which you you can assess and think about uh, state assistance. So in the second part of our report, we we do analyze means-tested schemes, even though uh, they only go out to a small number of households, and that analysis points to very clear findings, which is that uh, due to very stringent income limits. Um, households only are able to qualify for assistance uh, often when they fall significantly below um, minimum income standard. And even then, this is a particularly interesting one, the, the suggestion that the study uh, should think of housing as an asset, um, not, not as cost. Uh, this is something we, we, we anticipated, so this is addressed in the report, uh, but I'll just explain it briefly here. Um, like I said, because MIS is concerned with measuring needs, what things cost and not means, 
income sources and how to pay for things, uh, we consider primarily the cost of housing, right? And of course, those two things are, are separate concepts. Just because housing is an asset that stores value doesn't mean it costs nothing, right? To, to say that we should not consider housing as having a price because it is a store of value is, is to be conceptually very confused, I think. And, and of course, it also contradicts people's uh, intuitive understanding. Singaporeans are extremely sensitive to the affordability of housing. And for most people, it will be our largest lifetime expenditure. Right? So, so yes, um, housing assets, especially in the decumulation phase of families' lives, uh, will, can, can become an, an important income source, but that doesn't change the, its price and its cost. Also worth considering is how the liquidating of housing value or asset value is, is not, in fact, a straightforward thing, right? And so we should be very careful and we should resist simple assumptions um, that, that housing will, will subsequently become a, a significant income source. I say this because um, of several reasons. Firstly, uh, housing value is, of course, subject to market volatility, right? So how much it's worth depends on conditions. And secondly, in the specific context of Singapore, we must remember that uh, the, the lease decay uh, is a reality of public housing. So depending on the length of remaining lease, HDB flats have very different resale values and those at the end or nearing the end of their lease will be worth nothing at all, right? So it's also not entirely true and straightforward to say that housing assets uh, are always an income source. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Eun Kok Ho and Associate Professor Chiu Yu Yin. Right, and I want to circle back to the Minimum Income Standard, or MIS, which has come up a couple of times. Um, I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that in the United Kingdom, where the concept originated, the MIS has influenced the British government to raise the statutory minimum wage and call it a living wage. And if you look at how their national living wage has evolved, it's gone up again. So, And there are also some in the UK who argue that it should be extended to workers of a younger age. And so if you look at the global examples, they do highlight, I suppose, a certain difficulty in meeting people's expectations once you set an explicit threshold. Um, is this, you know, I mean, potentially a concern, you know, if it's applied to the Singapore situation where maybe, you know, the state has to keep saying, well, look, you know, we just have to go up by X amount this year and what's going to happen if it misses a certain target? Um, you've done it yourself. You've revised the amounts upwards um, over a period of two years. So how do you square this research with obviously, you know, there's a policymaker's kind of dilemma? I tend to think about this issue in a slightly different way. Uh, having to raise wage standards is is not a to me a policy dilemma, right? As long as we are clear about the principles and the objectives for doing so, um, if we believe that our society should pay wages that at least meet people's basic needs, then as the cost of needs increase, uh, so should wages. Right? That is not a bad thing. Um, it is the right thing to do. Right? So the UK is a really interesting example because, um, as you mentioned. They adopt not just one, but several different measures of what is an adequate wage. And then the terminology is very close, so it can be confusing, right? Um, I'll try to explain it briefly. The UK has, of course, a legal national minimum wage. Uh, this is statutory, so it's mandatory. 
What is confusing is that uh, the national minimum wage applies from the age of 16, but the amount goes up based on age. So for workers age over 23, a higher rate applies, and this rate is known as the national living wage. Uh, it is still part of a minimum wage regime, right? So this is a legal requirement, and it's not so much about them responding to kind of the public clamoring for pay increases. Uh, they have a process for determining wage levels. Um, they have a low pay commission, that's what it's called, uh, that does research and consultation every year that takes into consideration uh, the economic context, business conditions, wage trends, and, and critically impact on employment uh, before they make recommendations on adjustments to the minimum wage or national living wage levels. Right. Uh, their research is published and transparent. Um, their report is full, fully accessible for the public to read. And then the government will respond as to whether they want to accept the recommendations. So that's on the legal side. Separately, uh, for some years now, there has been the UK Living Wage Campaign. This is separate. Uh, it's a voluntary campaign um, that is based solely on addressing people's basic needs and cost of living. And it's this living wage campaign that uses the UK MIS results. It has been a very successful campaign. Currently, uh, around 10,000 employers uh, hiring 300,000 employees have signed up to this voluntary living wage, including big names like Google, Aviva, and Chelsea and Everton Football Club. Right? So it's a voluntary campaign, but very strong support. Um, and the level is only slightly higher than the le legal minimum. So the current rates are UK minimum wage. This is the legal requirement. Uh, it's £9.50. This is the, the level that the government sets. But the voluntary living wage campaign sets a rate of £9.90. So it's a difference of 40 pence. Right? The living wage campaign also calculates a slightly higher rate for persons living in London. That one is £11. So they have several different kind of points of reference for thinking about what is, uh, what is an adequate wage. I think this is a good example for us to think about because by adopting different approaches to thinking about wage standards, but always doing it in a, in a rigorous, transparent way where information is shared with and accessible to the public, it brings people in right into a process of thinking and deliberating together as a society with the public before they decide how to meet people's needs for dignified work and pay. Right. And do you foresee yourself doing a follow-up study every two years? And, and if so, until when? We have, um, I mean, at this point, we have no immediate or concrete plans, but we certainly hope there'll be opportunities to do it. Yeah. Um, and so, as, as you can, and, and the reason for this, I think you can see just from listening to what Kok Ho just said, that it's important and necessary to continue this work in order to capture the changing realities and increased cost of living. Um, circling back to what you said earlier about policy, I think if policies are indeed um, responding to people's needs and changing to include more subsidies or other things like that, then the MIS updates will allow us to evaluate their effectiveness yeah, and actually uh, helping people meet their basic needs. So I, I um, although we don't have concrete plans, we certainly hope that MIS work can and will continue. And on that note, thank you, Dr. Ng, for coming on our show. Thank you very much. And Prof. Tio, it was great to have you on too. It was great to be here. Thank you, Grace. 
And that's a wrap for In Your Opinion, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm Grace Ho. Don't forget to share this podcast episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to read my articles or check out the opinion section of The Straits Times, we have links in our podcast text description below. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.